So yeah, McDonald's it was. Oh, so you did work at McDonald's. I did. Yeah, I flipped burgers. I was a cashier. I was promoted really, really fast because I was capable of working like ridiculously long hours. And he was telling me, you know, the big problems of everything that exists today in the society is because people don't dream big enough. It's because they put a ceiling, like put a hard cap on their ambitions. If I had to pick up the laundry of a managing partner in my firm on Sunday night and deliver it on Monday, I'll do it. I think the attitude and just this desire to learn, there was two things that allowed me to succeed within that specific company. If you put your life into something that has meaning to it, you are dedicating ridiculous number of hours because not a single million on the bank account just magically showed up. You have to work really hard to get it. And it's better to do something that you're really excited about and something that you initially dreamed for yourself and then you made it happen and then your wealth came after. Hi, my name is Olga Maslikova. I am 38 years old, I actually just turned 38, and I am based in New York City. And what I do for a living is tech investing and being an entrepreneur in Latin America. Okay. And you do that all the way from New York? And I do that all the way from New York. I think COVID had such an incredible impact on how we think about work. So today, work is where we want it to be. So I spend half of my time in New York City and half of my time in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And what's the name of your company or firm that you invest in? So the name of my media platform that I'm building in Latin America is The J-Curve. And in addition to that, I'm an investor in over 16 early stage tech companies in U.S., Brazil, and virtually all over the globe. And they all have different names. My most recent deals are companies named Sunny, Beacon Founder, Cloud Humans, and Nyquist Data. And how do you find these companies that you invest in? I've actually been doing that for quite some time. I've been investing both as an angel and early stage VC since 2008. So it's been over a cycle. And by cycle, I mean 10-year fund period, plus one, plus one. So I got to build a pretty substantial network in the industry of founders and partners who know me well and refer me deals. And that's how I get my deal flow most of the time today. So you're saying like you're an investor now, but at one point you must have started a company, I guess, in order to gain this much capital to invest in all these companies. Is that what happened? Or how did you get the backing of the capital that you have to invest in all these startups? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that I've always been a terrible corporate employee. I started my career in 2008. And in five years since I've been employed by someone, I realized that the corporate environment just doesn't really fit my personality. So it was pretty obvious that I would need to start something on my own. And I was really lucky to be part of one of the most successful early stage VC firm back in Russia, where I was born and raised. And just getting the flavor of working with high-performing, high-ambitious people who dream really big and make really complex things happen, it kind of gave me a really great understanding of what I want to do. And fast forward forward, I started my first fund in 2013 in Singapore, actually. 
to invest in entrepreneurs building businesses in emerging markets and helping them scale internationally. And the first fund, I want to say the first closing of the fund was around $5 million, mostly coming from high net worth individuals, entrepreneurs who made money in tech and who believe in the potential of technology and who believe in the potential of emerging markets entrepreneurs. And fast way forward by 2017, the fund grew from $5 million assets under management to over $70 million assets under management, 25 companies globally distributed. We invested in things from alternative fuel, the company called Zero Avia that was backed by Bezos after us, to hardware cybersecurity company that was called Tertugologic, which is one of the largest providers of hardware cybersecurity for U.S. aerospace and defense today. So it was a very successful fund. We had several successful exits. And simultaneously with that, I started deploying really small cash as an angel investor. To start as an angel, you actually don't need that much money. You just need to be really lucky and have some sort of the thesis behind that activity. So my thesis was joining Techstars as a mentor and backing companies out of Techstars that I found interesting or I got to mentor. And that's basically how it all started. First capital came from high net worth individuals. And then it's just really about how good you are at what you do. Are you good at what you do? I want to say that I am pretty good at what I do. Yeah. I was just asking, like, what makes you good versus like other ones or I guess your competition? Because what would you call your role right now? I want to say, well, there are multiple roles, you know, when you're doing early stage investing. But what I started with was purely and is still today entrepreneur in venture capital, meaning that I'm not purely fund manager. Fund manager is the people who got paid out of the management fee. I started my own firm and I grew it, actually hired my first partner and build the team and grew it to the extent it was by 2017. So I would call myself a founder for sure. And now with the media platform that I'm building today, it's even more true. It's even more so. It's even more about being an entrepreneur in tech and venture capital. Well, I guess before we kind of reel it back to wherever you got started in your life as an entrepreneur or even growing up, is there anything else you think we should know about you overall before we reel it back and understand your history? Probably the good things to know would be is that I've been living across so many different markets from Russia to Singapore to the United Kingdom to Massachusetts to California to finally New York. And I've been investing across Singapore, India, UK, European Union, US. Probably the only country I haven't done a deal would be Malaysia, Vietnam, and China at this point. Is there a reason that you work in all these countries? Do you just find it fun or versus, you know, just investing in US startups or maybe startups in Russia or Latin America? So I think that. The very purpose of tech is to drive the improvements in human lives. And I think it's really important to put things in perspective. When you live in your own little bubble, being it, you know, Russia, Brazil, or United States, you don't really see much beyond your zip code, your community. And VC is a very long-term game. It's over a decade game. 
So you want to make sure that you have very different perspective. And when you build your investment thesis or you build your conviction around certain markets that you have so much data in it. And I think one market never provides enough data in your decision-making process. Yeah, but is it hard to connect with all the people all around the globe? Not if you come from emerging markets. If you come from emerging markets, I think that especially if you made it out of the market like Russia, which is a really hard market, and you made it on global markets, the reason why you survive and thrive on global markets is because you're good at making connections with new people, understanding new cultures, understanding new perspective, understanding different ways of doing business, very different from the one where you're coming from. So, yeah. Well, how are you able to connect with those people? Do you just have them on your media platform, the J-Curve, or is there other ways? I guess even before you had started J-Curve, was there other ways for you to easily connect? It's never been easy for me because I'm probably the utmost version of an introvert you can think about. But I really love the industry. I really love Finch Capital, and I really love working with early-stage founders. I think this love and passion for the space, it overcame my fear and lack of desire of building relationships with people. I think it's just about how better you want what you want and what are you ready to do for that. So for me, and I think for a majority of people in this specific industry, network is number one tool of acquisitions of companies, of building partnerships, of pushing, you know, M&As among portfolio and so on and so forth. There's no deal access if you don't have the right network among entrepreneurs and VCs alike. So I'd say, I think Brazil would be a really interesting example because Brazil is a relatively new market for me. I started looking at Brazil from the venture capital perspective in 2019 while I was in Stanford Business School. I really believe in Stanford's motto, you know, change lives, change organizations, change the world. So after graduation, I wanted to do something that was different from what I've done before, but at the same time, something that would allow me to leverage all of this experience that I've had operating across many different markets, passion for emerging markets, and desire to back something that has real big real life application. And I first traveled to Brazil in 2019 between Stanford classes, like three days, brutal schedule, red eye there, red eye back. And I fell in love with the country potential, even though I didn't and I still don't speak Portuguese. And when I got back, I initially started leveraging my Stanford community. There's so many Brazilians in Stanford. So it was really relatively easy to reach out to people and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in the market. I'd love to learn more about who are the great founders on the market, you know, who are the great entrepreneurs on the market. Refer me to, you know, two or three people from your network. So it's network after network after network. That was the first step. Second step for me was I did like a huge research paper in tech and VC ecosystem in Brazil and using my stanford.edu domain, I stalked so many people who got to talk to me and explain me what's happening on the market why everybody's excited about Brazil, why SoftBank back then was allocating, you know, $5 billion to fund early stage to late stage startups on the market. So that was something else I've done. And then after graduation, I just started to stalk people. I started to go deep into research of the key market players, learning as much as I could about them, and then just sending them an email. And basically that's how I ended on the advisory board position of the company in 
portfolio of one of the big Brazilian VC firms. The only international advisor, actually, just by stalking people and by constantly proving my value, by keeping in touch, and by being helpful, always, by investing forward. So for this Brazilian example, are you just looking, you have the companies down there, you find out which companies might need some capital or which ones are going to be hot down there. And then did you already know people with capital or you just had money in the bank already that you wanted to invest in them when you said you're quote unquote, like stalking them and just tell me like how you make this happen and how you make money from it. So when you enter a new market and you say, guys, I'm super excited about your markets, you first need to vote with your own cash. Nobody will give you cash until you prove you're serious on the market with any new market. So my strategy in Brazil was no different. What I did first, I built a portfolio of angel companies. I built a portfolio of tech companies as an angel investor, allocating small amounts of money from my own capital from five to $50,000 per company just to prove that I'm serious. And then you invest in those companies and then... Yeah, you invest in those companies, like one of the companies we have already sold. So I made some upside on that. You make an upside, you reinvest it back. The more you build yourself in the market, the more people trust that you're serious about the opportunity, the more their willingness is to co-invest with you and invest in you as a person who is trusted and knows what they're doing. And in venture capital, the returns, you ask me, like how you make money on that, returns are driven by the power law. You invest in a company, ideally you invest in portfolio of companies. If you take an example of my prior fund, our fund was like over $70 million and the portfolio was 25 companies. Out of those 25 companies, over half companies would never return anything. But the business of venture capital is not trying to maximize the performance of every company in the portfolio. It's just trying to maximize the performance of one to two to three percent of your companies in the portfolio, because those are the companies that allow you to make disproportionate upside returns. Like think Airbnb and Y Combinator, who was among first investors in Airbnb. I think they made like 3,000x on their initial investment in Airbnb. And my business is no different. But when you said you're investing maybe like five to 50,000 per company when you're going into Brazil, did you get money from other people too at the same time? Or was it just your money first? And then you ask these other people to invest after you prove it. That's the only thing I'm trying to figure out as well. And, and I appreciate you explaining all this because I've never really dove into details. We've all heard of venture capitalists or angel investors, but I think hearing from your perspective of you kind of doing it yourself and building your own fund, I think really could help people and at least help me kind of understand it. Yeah. So in Brazil, because it's a new market, like I mentioned, I started being active on the market after business school in 2020 and 2021. I want to say I've built already a portfolio. It's purely angel checks, like I said, between five and 50. And it's my money for sure. Going forward, I will create a fund and there will be other people's money, but I'm still not there. I'm still learning on the market. I think the more you know, the faster you mitigate the risks of failures on a big, a complex, and new market. In terms of the prior fund, we actually invested way more than 50 grand. We wrote the deals from 100,000 to $1.5 million. My biggest deal was $1.3 million in a company called Awesome, which is an awesome company. It's one of the biggest accounting service providers for SMBs on global markets today. Yeah, so Brazil, my money, fund, partially my money, but mostly money of limited partners. 
Those are institutions and individual investors who made cash or have cash to deploy and who have a conviction in the strategy of the fund manager. I'm with the author of Non-Food Franchising. And guess what? He's the number one franchise broker in the country. John Austinson, I actually interviewed him on episode 250 of the Sperry Podcast. So you can check out his story after the episode. But in the meantime, John, could you tell us why franchising is a better path to business ownership for so many of our listeners? Yeah, Austin, thanks for having me. You know, so oftentimes people are thinking about starting a business, but maybe they don't have that genius idea. Or so they say, well, why don't I go buy an existing business? And I actually wrote chapters on both of those topics in the, in the book, Non-Food Franchising. But I humbly believe that franchising is simply a better path to business ownership for the majority of people out there. And certainly you can look at the success rates. I mean, over 90% of franchisees are still in business after five years. And we all know what the stats are for startups. It's well below that. Again, a lot of people like the idea of this ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. There's been a lot in the media about this. Some of the things they like, and, and it can be a great option in some cases. You're getting existing cash flow day one. You have existing customers. You have a team in place. There's some market awareness you know, from past marketing efforts. Everything's kind of set up for you. At least on paper it is. It's a known entity there in the market. So people like that. And oftentimes they're willing to pay a multiple for it. However, I think oftentimes they forget a few other aspects. You know, when you go in to buy a business, you are paying a multiple. You're, you're paying well more than typically if you were to just start that business. And it may take several years to pay that back. You're also banking on the seller having accurate financial representations. That's what you, you know, made your offer based on. And oftentimes there's so many caveats and addbacks and things that aren't taken into consideration. They can be really, really hard to get good data to make that business decision off of. Third, you're inheriting a team of employees and some may be good, some may not be, but the fact is there's a built-in culture already that may or may not gel well with you. And we all know that whenever a business changes ownership, you know, there's going to be some turmoil and there's going to be some people that leave. And so the risk is you think you're paying for this team, but some of your key employees could leave the very next day, especially if it's not a franchise resale, you're in business for yourself <laughs> and by yourself. You don't have that franchise on the sideline. Fourth, I, I would say from a brand awareness standpoint, yeah, there's awareness in the market. It may be good, may not be good. Some of the mistakes that were made in the past may kind of sully the, the reputation. And I do think that people oftentimes don't weigh that risk. What if key customers leave? What if key employees leave? And here I am having paid a multiple. So that's why I, I feel like there's risk to entrepreneurship through acquisition. People oftentimes talk about, isn't there risk when you start a new business, even if it's a franchise? Yeah, there's always risk in business. That's why we do what we do. At the end of the day, if you get in with a good franchisor, and we'll talk more about this in a future episode, but you start checking those boxes of having a coach on the sidelines in that franchise, or you've got other franchisees you can learn from. You've got a playbook to execute against day one. You've got synergies and economies of scale from a buying standpoint, whether it be for services or for goods. And you get a higher multiple upon your exit in like kind industries. That's what the research has shown. So just want to tee that up. If you'd love to learn more, feel free to have a free copy of our book, Non-Food Franchising. You can come out to franbridgeconsulting.com. We'd love to share some free downloadable options with you. And if you'd like to take a next step and learn more about franchise opportunities and this wide array of industries that we participate in and we've seen unprecedented levels of interest in, I'd be more than happy to get on a call with any of your listeners, Austin, and have that conversation. So it's entirely free to work with us. We get funded with a referral fee by the franchise brand on the back end when a placement happens. You can think of me as this real estate broker. It's the exact same model. So we'd love to help any more of your listeners. We've helped quite a few in the past, and I look forward to talking more. Yeah. And thank you for sharing those stats as well, because 
I didn't know that about franchising. You say 90% are still franchising after five years versus let's say even say the restaurant business, what 95% are closed after five years, you know? So that's just interesting having someone who's able to help you out with the franchise. And I thought it was pretty interesting when you're talking about when you're acquiring a business versus starting a franchise business. It's important to know those differences because if you're acquiring a business, you're kind of getting that small mom and pop, right? Business more than likely. Maybe you're going to have enough capital to buy a big business, but if you're doing franchising, it is different. You're saying maybe they loved the owners who were running their own business before the employees, and then they leave once you become the new owner. And then it's like you're starting a new business all over again. So I think those are some great tidbits that you had there that maybe makes people understand what the difference is between A, starting a business, B, acquiring a business, and then C, what you kind of help people do is doing that franchise business model. So anyone who's listened to the podcast, they know there might be higher upside in starting your business from scratch, but almost every entrepreneur I've had on, literally everyone has had multiple failed businesses at some point, either before, after, or in between. So looking at the risk assessment and trying to get the most success and you're scared to kind of do it on your own, seems like contacting John and finding out more about franchising might be the best opportunity. So again, could you share the best place for them to reach you? Come out to franbridgeconsulting.com, sign up for our newsletter, sign up for a free copy of our book. And uh, if you'd like to take the next step, just leave a comment and we'll reach out to you and set up a call. And I look forward to helping many of your listeners. What's the biggest hurdle or like wake up that you found when you were going into Brazil and investing in these companies? I think it's cultural wake up. I think that over the course of my life, I got so used to taking risk. Like I've taken risk multiple times. And I think that's the reason why venture capital is an industry that fits me perfectly. And in Brazil, I think the initial hurdle was that people are really afraid to fail. So they have to innovate by necessity because it's a market where there's no middle class still. You know, it's 216 million population, huge income inequality gap, but at the same time, huge potential and huge stigma around failure. So how do you reconcile this necessity to build something in the market where nobody will do it for you with the social biases towards failing? So I think that was a really interesting wake-up call. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure we can dive a little bit more into details later. I think that overall, that kind of helps us understand the whole venture capital and angel investing, at least a little bit more than we normally get from somebody. So if you don't mind, why don't you go ahead and tell us, you told us you grew up in Russia. Why don't we go ahead and reel back to where you grew up in Russia and then just kind of take us from there. I grew up in Moscow, which is the capital of Russia. And I grew up in a very interesting period historically for the country. So I was born in 1985. And then I don't know how much you know about history of Russia, but in 1991, Soviet Union collapsed and everybody were, you know, at least in most people's imagination, on the way to democracy. So there was this period of time when people believed that there would be some form of democratic future in the country. So I grew up during this like really tough time when, you know, the initial currency was devaluated and then there was a new currency and then there was like wild, wild west bonanza where a lot of people got rich really fast during this period. It was not safe initially, then it became safer. And then I think Everybody transitioned from the idea of democracy to the idea of what it is today, which is, I think it's, what's they called, like sovereign democracy, but authoritarian regime at the core. Yeah, so I had like a pretty normal, like lower 
middle class, I want to say, childhood. I was really lucky because my mother thought that it's really important to give a perspective of education outside of Russia. So I got to spend a little bit of time in Canada and that's where I kind of got exposed to the world that did not exist where I grew up. I was really into sports. I did ice skating, was super intentional and competitive in ice skating. Yeah. And then at the age of 16, I decided that I have major disagreements with my parents and it's kind of take it or leave it kind of disagreements. And I left home to never get back. And I started to build my own independent life since I was 16. And it's not like it is in the States. It was like a cultural shock, I think, when I moved in and here. And I realized that it's normal for, you know, kids to work at the age of 16, work in McDonald's, buy their own like second use car vehicles and so on and so forth. It was not the case in Russia. In Russia, there was a big bias as against teenagers who worked in, you know, fast food chains and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of stigma when I grew up. And I think when you think about like the main things that shaped my personality from the childhood, it was this decision to leave home at the age of 16 and got exposed to both goods and bads of being an independent person who had to take care of herself. I think the second important thing that happened to me was me becoming a mother when I was 20. I think my life really separates in two fat lines until I became a mother and after I became a mother. Because when I became a mother, I realized that I have to become really strategic in terms of my life because it's not just me who depends on me. There's another human life that depends on me. And if I fail, I would not just fail myself, I would fail someone else who have absolutely no one else to lean on. And that was a really important realization. I think that's something that made me intentional and strategic in terms of building myself in the business environment, which is scalable outside of Russia as well. And I think getting into private equity in 2008 and transitioning into venture capital later the same year, because private equity in Russia just like the private equity all over the world collapsed that year, was somewhat intentional decision. And then luck had it as well, you know, serendipity occurred. I got to be on the team in that firm I was employed by that was a super early investor in the company called Evernote. Do you know Evernote? Have you heard of them? Yeah, you see it all the time. Yeah, so... We were the first institutional investor in Evernote because Stepan Pachikov, who is the Evernote co-founder and CTO, he faced a lot of issues with fundraising in Silicon Valley. So he turned back to, you know, his peers back in Russia with whom he knew well or went to school with. And that's how we ended up in the deal. And we sold our shares to Sequoia and Morgan Thaler later on by 2010 made a huge return on the fund and it ended up being a very successful fund and successful start for me as a manager in venture capital back then. And then fast way forward, I joined another firm as a VC associate. I spent just a little bit of time there because we ended up deciding that we need to spin out the early stage division from that firm into a separate vehicle, partially because the fund I joined, ended up raising more money than they wanted. I think they wanted to raise like $30 million. They ended up raising over $70 million. And they just decided that from the economics perspective, betting on something slightly 
later stage than early stage investing, it makes better sense. And to me, I think I have always been, you know, somewhat retarded in finance or Excel spreadsheets. I just couldn't really understand. And I didn't really want to work with spreadsheets. Like, I think my strength has always been an empathy and emotional intelligence. I think my emotional intelligent brain was like pretty developed by that point. And I really wanted to work with founders at the earliest stage of their endeavor in technology. That was my passion. That was my goal. And when I realized that I would not be able to hit that goal as part of that initial firm I joined, I decided that it would be great to do it as a standalone vehicle. Yeah. And that's what we did. We spent out super early stage, like seed stage funding into the separate vehicle. Partners of that prior firm put a little bit of money. I got to hire an incredible partner who proved to be an absolute incredible operator in venture capital. And together with him, we built that firm from scratch in 2013 to what it was when I stopped being operationally involved in 2017, 2018. I moved to Singapore because, and I think that in general, we did a pretty interesting job with the thesis of the first firm because our thinking was that, look, we're the first time fund managers. I had an experience in venture capital. He had an experience in venture capital. But overall, there was little that we could counter offer to more established VC fund managers in the US or in Europe, for example. So we decided that we want to carve out a zone, like geographical zone or thesis, that would be less of interest to more established players. And that's how Southeast Asia came into play and Singapore came into play. Because back then, in 2013, there was nothing in terms of venture capital in Southeast Asia. Nobody did that. And also, our thesis was deep tech investment in enterprise software. Nobody really did that. Both things together. Not even they did that. Both things separately as well. So yeah, for us, it was a pretty interesting thesis, pretty unique, pretty niche, pretty specific that allowed us to raise capital from people who made money in somewhat similar space in terms of enterprise software. Yeah. And I spent four years living in Singapore, traveling all over Southeast Asia and scaling the portfolio of companies from there. What was the name of the company? Because it's all been the same company that you've worked for, right? The whole time? Yeah. Fistech Ventures. It was called Physics and Technology Ventures. It actually still exists, but I'm no longer a general partner in that firm. For many reasons, a war between Russia and Ukraine being one of them. So Viztech Adventures, that's what you started in whenever you got into the venture capital? This is called a venture capital firm? No, this is my fund that I started in 2013 out of Singapore. Okay, but before that, what was the name of the company that you're working with? Before that, the fund's name is Sale Runa Capital, and it's a big firm today. It's over, I want to say they have over $500 million assets under management. And when did you actually move to Singapore? In 2013. Okay, so yeah, you're 28 at that point. But yeah, do you mind if we kind of go backwards before we go forward anymore? Of course. How about we just go back to when you were 16, if you don't mind, 2001. You said you moved out of your parents' house. Yeah, just tell us from there what you actually did to get a job. And did you have your own apartment? Did you stay at a friend's house? Like, let's just dive into that before we keep moving on to all the business stuff, if you don't mind. No, I didn't have an apartment. It was nothing like, I don't know if you could actually get an apartment at the age of 16 in Russia, but I lived in between different friends' houses, hopped on from one friend place to another friend place. And 
there were many nights where I did sleep in the same place for like two or three nights in a row. And getting a job in Russia when you were 16 back then was pretty challenging. I think the only place that you could work back then was McDonald's because you had to be 18 before you were able to get a more decent job, the way they called it. So yeah, McDonald's it was. Oh, so you did work at McDonald's. I did. Yeah, I flipped burgers. I was a cashier. I was promoted really, really fast because I was capable of working like ridiculously long hours straight. Did you go to school still or did you drop out of school too? No, no, no. I did go to school. I did graduate. Although, you know, I had this like really strong teenage rebellious spirit to the extent that at some point, like I was a straight A student until probably high school. And then after I got back from Canada and just like understanding that the environment where I live in today is not something where I want to be tomorrow, I completely gave up on anything that was perceived as necessary in the social environment back in Russia. And I started to think, okay, so this is not where I want to be. What do I do to build myself into a person who would be capable of being in other places in this world. And when you went to Canada, did your parents just sign you up for study abroad or something in high school? Yeah, I went to Hamilton, which was like a little town not too far from Toronto. And so Canada, right? My mother really wanted me to study abroad. So I think U.S. went off the list because if I were to choose to stay in the States after high school, there were some complicated rules of seeing your family. There were some preventive barriers for your family to come to the U.S. You'd have to meet like elsewhere and so on and so forth. And there was a time when Canada was super open for immigrants. So to us, the idea was, all right, so you're going to go spend some time in Canada, go to this international school in Hamilton, see how that fits. And, you know, if everything goes right, maybe you'll apply to university and you'll go to university in Canada. That was the plan initially. It really didn't work because at large, I think, because when I got back, I got into this like rebellious teenage years and I fell off with my mother. We started to have major disagreements in terms of figure skating, in terms of our ideas on what is the right career for me and so on and so forth. So yeah, I ended up not going to Canada for college. I ended up going to school in, in Russia. But that experience was really important for me to understand that there is a completely different reality and there's a completely different way of living your life. And that reality could be a better fit for my personality. Makes sense. And so, yeah, you came back, you're rebelling. You then said at one point that you became a mother when you were 20. So did you have your own place at that point or, or like how did that work out? No. Back then, I lived with my daughter's father. I didn't have my place. I actually never had my place in Russia. Okay. It was, I think, the closest I got to having my place was renting an apartment. Did y'all end up getting married or anything? No. I was never into being married, I think. I mean, if you just look at from the data perspective on the rate of divorce. Yeah, but you you probably weren't doing that at age 20. <laughs> No, I actually did. I actually did. <laughs> you, you said, let me run an analysis of what my chances are staying together so I'm not going to get married. So age 20 or maybe 21, I want to say 21, I started to experience this 
crazy necessity and just like crazy desire to understand and find my own meaning in the world, I think in general, because there's so many things that were wrong with my life back then. There was nothing like no one in my community was in any form similar to me. Like everybody had like good relationships with parents, with brothers, sisters, clear view of what their future should be and so on and so forth. And I was this like, I don't even know who, you know, left home, had a baby and all this stuff. So I really wanted to find something in me that would make me feel confident about my different path. And that actually led me to India. So I was 21 when I came to India first, but from 21 until I was 24, I spent in between three to six months in India. So I lived in Russia from March until like November. And then I went to Goa and I lived the rest of the year in Goa and working remotely for that first venture capital company I was employed with in 2008 and before that. So I was really into yoga, into meditations, into all these healthy living practices, into this stillness and so on and so forth. So going back to your question, have I run a data analysis in terms of the marriage? I actually did. I never found a reason for myself to get married. Like I thought that if you really need some form of the contract obligations to stay together or to fit in the society, that is not what I want to be part of. To me, the best contract is trust and alignment. And I just didn't feel that marriage was a necessity. I couldn't find my why for doing that. Are you still with the person that you had a baby with? No, I separated with him when my daughter was six months. And today, as we're speaking today, I have three children from different former partners. Both are former partners. But yeah. So when you're going to India, were you taking, was it your daughter? Yeah, actually, she has an Indian name. She has a name, Uma. And Uma is a very Indian name. And yeah, she spent a lot of time in her early life in India with me, in Goa. She even went to this like little British kindergarten in Goa. It was pretty popular option for people who moved in Goa for the winter period of time. Is Goa just like a state in India or is it like, a, am I G-O-A? Am I spelling that right or is it something else? It's G-O-A, Goa. And yes, it's a, is it a state. I mean, it's definitely part of India that was British colony. So there are a lot of Brits in Goa. It's really different from all other India, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I have it saved on my Google Maps, which means that there was something that I did like about it. In, in case anyone's wondering, it's like on the west side of India. If you're looking at India, kind of like a triangle, right? So I guess anyone who's listening, they know. For six months, you'd basically be in India. And then six months, you'd be in Russia. You're taking your daughter with you back and forth. But this is, again, all before you got into private equity, right? Yeah, I think the last time I went to Goa was in 2008 when private equity collapsed and everybody was uncertain. And I haven't spent six months there that specific year. I've spent like a few weeks there and then got back. And to me, it was a pretty interesting period because private equity collapsed, but I joined venture capital. Venture capital is the industry that thrives in adverse environments. As much as tech companies created in adversity tend to be much healthier and more successful than tech companies created in the perfect on top of the market cycle. So yeah, 
Last time I went to Goa was 2008, and I haven't been back ever since. But I still have a lot of friends from that time. Getting even into private equity before things collapsed, how did you make that transition from McDonald's to that? I was hired initially as an executive assistant for a private equity division. So I think just to kind of conceptually, the way I think about things is that there's absolutely no limits to what you can do. And it's not about where you're starting. The main thing always for me has been to find an entry point. Just find something where you are qualified to get started. And then just work really, really hard and be really useful for people. And that's how I build myself. No matter what I joined, you know, that's how I got promoted in McDonald's super early. That's how I, starting in as an executive assistant in private equity, I transitioned to investor relationship specialist in venture capital and later started managing portfolio in venture capital. To me, find the company you like, find a way to get in, and then just do your best always. So that was it. And that's the reason why private equity was not detrimental for me during crisis when I want to say like over 50% of people in the company I was working for were laid off. And why weren't you laid off? Because I built incredible relationships with managing partners I was reporting to. I was available 24-7. There was not a single task that was out of my scope of responsibility in my perspective. If I had to organize, like, I don't know, pick up the laundry of a managing partner in my firm on Sunday night and deliver it on Monday, I'll do it. I think the attitude and just this desire to learn, there was two things that allowed me to stay and succeed within that specific company. I would say it almost seems like you have two personalities just from what have we talked about so far is just a the workaholic lifestyle, right? Where it seems like that's why you weren't laid off. But then you're also saying you're into yoga, maybe more of a hippie lifestyle as well. Is that a good way to characterize kind of the two personalities going on here at the same time? No, I was. I think that to me, this period of self-discovery, it was the period that ended when I finally started to feel confident in what I can do from the professional perspective. I'm not into yoga anymore. I do like a bunch of stuff like intermittent fasting and crazy workouts every day, but it's more to build mental resiliency than to be a hippie. And I wish I was more a hippie than I am a workaholic, but I think since 2008, all I've been doing is figuring out how to run faster than everyone else around me and how to do things that excite me and how to be and lead by example and be an example for my daughters. Well, right when you got into that private equity firm, right, as an executive assistant, did you know then that you wanted to be promoted in the firm or were you just kind of looking for a job and then you're like, you know what, I see potential here. You know, if I work my ass off, maybe I can get promoted and be a bigwig. No, I was looking for a job, but I think the company I worked for back in 2008, it was called Troika Dialog Group. It was actually a pretty unique and pretty specific company, and you could feel it and you can sense it the moment you get into the office building. Troika Dialog was the largest independent financial institution. And when you think about independent financial institution in the market, like Russia, it's a very rare breed of animal because majority of everything is owned by the state. So it was a pretty unique organization of over 1.5 thousand people built by entrepreneurs, very successful, with a really incredible corporate culture, with 
English as the language of internal communication with so many expats from different parts of the world being part of that organization. So yeah, I got in because I really needed a job. And I think the reason why I was hired was because I was really hungry to prove myself. And also because I did speak pretty good English because I got to study in Canada. So those two things, they got me into the organization. They were this entry point. And later on, I just really sold myself on the idea of this company being a really amazing environment. And I, I remember I used to report to this managing partner, Kanako Sikini. She's like an incredible woman. I think she was like 60, a Japanese woman who spent all of her career in IBRD. And she was hired to deal with the assets in private equity as the market was collapsing. And it was such a cool experience to work with her, with her ruthless work ethics, like around the clock and being part of and just seeing all these like really tough managerial decisions and just trying to help in any way I could. That's, I think, just this a combination of this incredible corporate environment and people I got to build relationships with and work with. There was something that allowed me to start dreaming really big in terms of what I can do. And so is that the private equity firm that closed? Was it? Trekker Dialogue? So Trekker Dialogue is an independent financial institution. So it was like a group of companies that had like hedge funds, real estate, private equity, venture capital, everything under one roof, right? So think about that as a different divisions within, let's say, JP Morgan, right? So it was not a standalone private equity and not standalone venture capital. It was like this big house under one roof with a different department in it. And yeah, I started in private equity. And migrated to venture capital as the market and private equity as, as an asset class collapsed. And yeah, from operational businesses to tech sector. And so you did that for how many years before moving to Singapore? Before I moved to Singapore, I worked for a different firm, like I mentioned, called Runa Capital. But in that specific company in Troika Dialog Group, I worked until 2010, until the company was acquired by Sberbank, which is the largest bank. Like state bank, I want to say in Europe, but one of the biggest in the world as well. And I just didn't really feel like being part of a corporate VC in state-owned bank. So I moved on to Runa Capital. And then so Runa Capital from 2010 to whenever you moved to Singapore. So we started working on the idea of the fund in late 2011. So it took us like a year to raise the funds, finalize investment thesis, finalize the relationships with Runa Capital as a feeder of deals. So yeah, roughly like a bit over a year in Runa and then getting ready to raise the fund and do, doing the first closing in 2013 and getting started. And at this point, you're a single mother. Are you you're traveling with your daughter to Singapore too? Like how were you able to handle this, like trying to move up in a company while also being a single mother? You know, it was really funny. So back then I was not single uh, in 2010. I was dating the father of my other two children. The way I handled my work with my daughter was a pretty unconventional way. I just took her everywhere with me. When she was little, no matter what I did, I just took her with me in the bassinet. So she joined my meetings and schedules and calls and everything, because I actually didn't really think about the motherhood as something that has to be separated from my life as a worker, as a professional. 
I thought that it actually has to be integrated. And I did integrate it as much as I could. And I actually have been integrating that ever since. I think all of my children, which today the ages vary from seven years old until 18 almost. She's turning 18 this week. They know really well what I do. They follow what I do and they are my biggest cheerleaders. And the seeds to that were put back then when she was little, when Uma was little. And so I guess I had cut you off when you said you moved to Singapore. So let's kind of pick up back there. So what year was it and how old are you? And were you just give us a little rundown. Were you still dating the guy? I guess it well sounds like it that you had the other two children with. Yeah, totally. Because we had two kids together. It was 2013. Yeah. And Singapore, I don't know how much you know about Singapore, but Singapore is this like, it's a pretty impressive place. And I am by nature, I'm a big history fan. And I really love reading autobiographies of biographies of people who did like ridiculously important things with their lives. And one of those people with whom I was absolutely inspired with and impressed with was Lee Kuan Yew, who is the founding father of Singapore. And Singapore is the country that was built into the first world country in less than, I don't know, like 40, 50 years from byproduct of Malaysia without having any natural resources, without actually having anything. Lee Kuan Yew and his leadership team built this city into like the garden state. It's probably the most beautiful and the safest place you'd ever be in the world, I want to say. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Financial system of Singapore is super advanced. Half of the population of the country is expats from Europe and Australia mostly. And yeah, there was incredible four years when you launch a VC firm in the market like Singapore, where an average person spends like 30, 40 years in the same position, in the same company, and you just explain that you're dealing with the startups, you know, where the risk of failure is over 80%, where there is no substantial cash compensation and most of your upside comes in stock. It's a pretty interesting conversations to have. So it was a lot of fun adapting to the culture. Remember, we started the conversation in terms of what was the interesting realization, an interesting wake-up moment in Brazil. It was culture. And in Singapore, it also was culture. It was like risk adversity. It was this passion for stability, respect for authority. So yeah, it was a really interesting adaptation period and super important for years of my life. And this was the first time you had started your own fund? That was the first time I started my own fund. And that was the first time I lived outside of Russia for an extended period of time. Hey, John. So why are so many entrepreneurs and investors getting into franchising? Thanks for having me, Austin. You know, we are seeing unprecedented levels of interest across the country, you know, and, and so many are waking up to the fact that franchising is a better path to business ownership for the vast majority out there. Really, there's three groups that we see getting involved in franchising. First, you've got your traditional corporate refugees, I like to call them. And they've been working the nine to five. They've been grinding. They're tired of building someone else's empire. They're ready to build their own. So we see record levels coming out. You know, I, I'm in my early 40s. Quite a few folks in their 30s and 40s and 50s, but stepping away, even in their 20s. We, we do have some clients there. But I think COVID really has caused a lot of people to question the path they're on and say, hey, maybe now's the time to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and you know, either jump in full time or maybe get something going on the side, which I'll speak to in, in a minute. So that'd be your first group, corporate group. 
Second would be investors. Right now, you know, especially in the real estate arena, if you're a real estate investor, there aren't that many good deals to be had. Inventory is low, interest rates are high, and I'd say probably 80% of our clients also invest in real estate. There's just a lot of synergy, and, and right now they're out there looking for yield and looking for better paths to alternative investments. So we see a lot of interest from investors. And then third, we're seeing existing business owners. A lot of people have started their own company, maybe, and they, they've been growing it, and they've got it in a good place now. And I will say franchising is not right for everyone. Some people are too entrepreneurial. Some business owners are. But for the vast majority, I'd say a lot of our business owner clients love the fact that they know what went into setting up a business back in the day. And they love the idea of starting on third base where a lot of things are already in place for them to step into and execute. So they really have an appreciation for franchising. And as they're kind of building out that portfolio of businesses. One thing that's important, you know, if you're a business owner, if you're going to keep your day job, how does that work in franchising? Really, there's three different models. One would be your owner operator. I'd say that's probably about half of our clients that go down that path. That's where someone jumps in to running the day-to-day operations. Secondly, would be what we call semi-passive or semi-absentee or executive model. And that's where you put a manager in place day one. The nice thing about franchising is you've got a franchisor on the sideline that's also helping to manage and coach that manager, take some of the burden off of you on a day-to-day basis. You know, you're still going to be involved, but you're going to be more focused in the energies and the time that you're putting into the business. Number three would be what we call an investor passive model. Very rare in franchising. There's probably five or six companies out there that do this today. That's where the franchisor can actually run the business for you. So it really is almost entirely passive. I'm personally invested in one of those amongst, actually, I've got several semi-passive and then a uh, passive one myself. I've, I've been a franchisor. I am a multi-brand franchisee. So I absolutely live in this out as well. And what I find oftentimes, Austin, is that someone will start out maybe running the day-to-day operations with the intention then to put a manager in place and they can step back and be more strategic and focused on other things. That's very common. I think of my client, Nathan, as a good example of that in South Carolina. Nathan's the largest franchisee of two men in a truck moving service, operates in like 12 markets. Every year, Nathan and I do another deal together. We've done one in the waste management space, one in the plumbing space, one in the driveway, concrete space. All these businesses that we would call property services, you know, non-sexy, cash-flow and understandable businesses. And he's now up to 30 locations across six different brands, doing well north of $30 million a year. And he's really built out a nice organization. You know, he's 41 years old. So it's doable. Everyone's at a different place in their journey. But that whole portfolio approach is very common. And again, it's corporate refugees, investors, business owners. All of us fall into one of those buckets. That's where we're seeing all the interest. So If you'd like to learn more, I'd be more than happy to jump on a call. Would also recommend our book, Non-Food Franchising. It was a bestseller. We've gotten great feedback. If you come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, you can share your interest in a book. We'll send you the links where you can download different versions of the book. And then, like I said, if you'd like to take a next step and jump on a call, just indicate that as well, and we'll make it happen. Yeah. And one of the interesting things you're saying, you have even investors and real estate investors, maybe more specifically, if someone even started with the franchise business through you or or find their own that they like, and then they take that money that they're actually making and say, if they don't own any real estate, they want to buy real estate later. There's a lot of people who become kind of wealthy from taking that cash flow from the actual business. And by investing in a real estate, you get the depreciation and cost segregation shields kind of like on small business income. So you end up with a lot more cash and very little tax. So that's just one more thing that I guess I know from my standpoint that kind of helps those people. Maybe they are just real estate owners already, or maybe they want to be future ones. But this is definitely a model of like, okay, I, hopefully I can have a successful business, small business through franchising. And then I take the cash flow or capital that I have instead of paying as much taxes as possible on it. 
by investing that extra money into real estate, you're able basically to kind of have some cost segregation and depreciation that hides that actual income that you pay less taxes and you make more money. So it seems like it works for everybody. But yeah, thank you for coming on and sharing that. If you want to hear more about John's story, everybody, I actually interviewed him on episode 250 of the podcast. So you can hear more on how he helped entrepreneurs in that story. And then he also brought up two men in a truck. So if anyone wants to hear about like how that two men in a truck franchise actually started, actually interviewed on episode 153, one of the founders. So hopefully all this is coming full circle of like all these interviews I've done. And you can find out more about John's story and the two men in a truck story. So thanks for coming on, John. And again, if anyone wanted to check out his website, that is franbridgeconsulting.com. Right. And you said your boyfriend came with you as well. You, did y'all have kids yet? No, we didn't have kids. My second daughter was born in 2014. But yes, of course, because so my the father of my children, he is Singaporean, Russian Singaporean. So yeah, we went to Singapore together. Oh, so he was born in Singapore? No, he obtained Singaporean citizenship. Oh, at the same time that you did? Or did he have any influence of why you went there? I never had a Singaporean citizenship. And it's not that easy to obtain it, but my children's father, he's a pretty successful entrepreneur who built his business at the intersection of Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe initially. So he was one of the first people who got Singaporean citizenship out of Eastern Europe. You ask whether or not the decision to move to Singapore was influenced by him partially. Yeah, partially, but not fully, because it's just from the perspective of investing in Southeast Asia... In Eastern leveraging R&D in Eastern Europe, Singapore is just the perfect place to be. It's a very simple commute anywhere in the region. And at the same time, it's the safest place to build a family. And when you started your fund here, this is what you said earlier is FizTech Adventures. That was the name of your fund? FizTech Ventures, like physics and technology ventures. I put adventures. I meant so ventures. I'm making sure. I love that. I should have trademarked that FizTech Adventures. That's pretty cool. So when you start that, how much money did you have saved up personally? Because this is, this is your first time being, quote unquote, like real entrepreneur where you're not underneath anybody else who has funds and everything like that, correct? So when you start the fund and you don't have substantial savings, so what you do, you defer the management fee. So the way VC fund works is that, let's say you raise a certain amount of capital. So you say you raise like, I don't know, $10 million in capital for the fund. And management fee out of those $10 million could be in between 1.5 to 2.5%. So 1.5 to 2.5% annually, you get to spend on your expenses. It's your compensation as a fund manager and, you know, a bunch of others. So when you don't have savings, like I didn't have savings, you defer your personal payoff out of this management fee. So you say, okay, out of this $10 million, roughly 250000 is our compensation as a general partnership, an X amount of capital will be put back in the fund as my individual commitments, if you understand what I'm saying. I understand the 1% to 2.5% because that'd be 100,000 to 250,000. Restate that again, if you don't mind what you're saying happened with you. So normally when you start a VC firm, you are supposed to make a commitment to the fund. Okay, gotcha. So you're supposed to put in like a million. If you've got 10 million total, someone's supposed to put in. So it really depends. In general, it's a, it's in terms of percent. So let's say your target size of the fund is XYZ. 10 million. Let's, let's, let's put, make it easy numbers. 10 million. So normally, if you are 
a first-time fund manager, you put up to 1% of the funds in your own capital. Okay, so you had to put in 100000 in this case. Yes. And then if you made money previously and you have this cash, awesome. But if you haven't, you can choose to use the portion of your compensation from the management fee which is the compensation out of this $10 million for managing the fund, for doing the deals and managing the portfolio, you say, okay, I'm not going to get my salary out of this 2.5% of management fee. I'm going to put them back in the fund. So that's how you don't put all of your cash up front, but you put the cash from the fund, from something that was supposed to be your compensation. And that's what we've done, both me and my partner. So the first year, instead of taking $100,000, or if we did the 1%, you're like, hey, I'm going to take nothing and that will be the money I put in. Yeah, or I'm going to take a little bit because when you think about the business of venture capital, the reason why, for example, today is such a lucrative space because team and venture capital is relatively small. So let's say you're on a fund of 30, 40, 50 million dollars. You have a team of three to five people. So you basically you have this 2.5% of management fee spread between a very limited number of people. So if you are good at fundraising and if you do a good job as portfolio manager, you're really well paid, not just on the upside, meaning on the return of this portfolio of companies that you've built, but also on the management fee that comes as a percentage of the total amount of assets under management. So if you are good at what you're doing, I'm saying, you can find a way to reallocate part of your compensation as your commitment to the fund and also still have some leftover that allow you to sustain yourself until you actually start seeing exits. This is what it's kind of alluding to, I guess, in the beginning of understanding like how much money do you need to be in venture capital or private equity or whatever we're talking about, any type of fundraising to an extent. And now you're kind of explaining in more detail. Thank you. As far as like yeah, you're saying you don't need as much money as you think, right? So yeah, this definitely helps. Whereas like I'm thinking anyone who's running this type of fund would have to have millions in the bank personally just to even be part of like a $50 million fund where they put some amount into the fund, but you don't need as much as you think if you can do the fundraising properly, you're saying. Yeah. And I think there are many more ways. So there was this huge wave of emerging fund managers in the post-COVID world, like 2020, 2021. I don't know if you heard this phrase, emerging fund managers, but it's basically first-time managers. It's people who raise their first VC fund without having an experience of managing huge portfolio before. Typically, it's, you know, former entrepreneurs or maybe employees of different firms, like in my case, and so on and so forth. So you just decide to start your own fund and raise your own capital. And for that, you really don't need, and in most cases, you probably never had an opportunity to accumulate wealth. So there's multiple ways to do it without having a pile of cash sitting on your account. One is, like I said, when you make a commitment, but then, well, you basically, you give up on your salary in the favor of that commitment from the management fee. This could be one thing. The second thing that you also could do if you, like me, for example, had an experience of angel investing, of writing any type of checks, you can also use your shares. Because if you did well as an angel investor, the on paper price of the shares and the companies that you hold, it goes up. And I'll give you an example. Like I invested in ClassPass in 2013. And ClassPass is a tech unicorn, which means the company whose valuation was over $1 billion. And it was acquired by MindBody last year. So the company is doing really, really well. 
But I invested in the company when they were like a tiny little startup out of Techstars. There was, you know, Payal and her co-founder. So the valuation was really low. The valuation was like several million dollars. And imagine like the value of company goes from, let's take $7 million. It goes all the way to a billion dollars. Even with the dilution, the value of your shares that you acquired in the company goes up. So when you start the fund and let's say you had a successful or relatively successful prior experience as an angel investor, you can take those shares and put them in the fund as a part of your commitment to the fund. And that's actually really highly appreciated by people to whom you go to raise capital for the fund. So that's another way to compensate for lack of cash sitting on your bank account. That makes total sense. And yeah, thank you for clarifying and kind of digging in the details here because I don't think I've ever dug in the details this much of kind of understanding it. So definitely appreciate it. So you're in Singapore, like you said, in 2013. How long were you in Singapore for? And let's uh, just kind of continue along with your story here. Yeah, I was in Singapore for four years almost until 2017. And then in 2017, there were two things happened. First, I think I really got tired of living in a small country because like I said, Singapore is like 10 million people, the whole population. To Just to put things in perspective, if you get a car at Shangji Airport to get to Malaysia, it will take you like 40 minutes. So I was like really, really small. And to me, it was like, oh my God, I'm living in this incredibly beautiful, safe country, but it's so small. And this like risk averseness and this desire to, you know, be part of just to kind of stability, this quest for stability, that was something that I think I got really tired of. So I really wanted to move to the States. I started like from 2010 till 2017. I've been to the States so many times because I had this portfolio of companies in mind. You know, ClassPass was in New York City. Today it's in Montana, but it was in New York City. I had a portfolio of companies in Massachusetts and California. So I got to spend a lot of time in, you know, tech hubs in the U.S. with all these dreamers who immigrated into country, you know, to build something big, to pursue their dreams. And I really wanted to be part of that. And I think by 2017, my desire to be part of that, it was really, really unbearable. I decided that to apply, you know, it's not that easy to move to the States, by the way, if you're a foreigner. So what I did, I decided to apply for this visa. I don't know if you ever heard about O1 visa. Have you heard of O1 visa ever? No, tell us about it. So O1 visa, it's the visa for people with extraordinary capabilities. Oh, yeah. I just looked it up. I, that's exactly what I said. Yeah. It's on U.S. citizenship. Individuals with extraordinary ability or achievement. Yeah. And initially, this visa was created for extraordinary athletes and actors and, you know, all of these people in performance whom you could not really measure on, like, say, scientific merits and so on and so forth. So that was the visa to drag all this incredible artistic crowd. And later they expanded the visa for people who are really good at what they do in, in their industries. So I decided to apply for that visa and I did in 2017, I applied for it based on my early stage investing activities on global markets. So build an argument that I could back startups here of completely different backgrounds and help them, you know, scale globally. And one important thing, I think that every single company I backed in the States by 2017 
sent the letter to USCIS and vouched for me. And that was really important for me personally as someone who, you know, spent most of their life uh, supporting entrepreneurs, but also to build a case for USCIS. And fast forward, I got this visa in March 2017. And so I moved to Massachusetts. Oh, it's in Boston? Yeah, I moved to Boston initially. Okay. And then from there, you were just investing the whole time. I know you did say something about Stanford at one point as well. Yeah. So when I moved to the States, yeah, I continued investing. I started being more intentional about building the portfolio and, you know, being an active mentor in tech stars here in the States, just to kind of prove to the USCIS the decision to grant me the visa was the right one. Just to kind of be closer to Silicon Valley and be closer to all of the people in my industry who have always impressed me enormously, I decided to apply to Stanford. Kind of the way I operate, I don't really believe in optionality that much. So I didn't really apply to like a bunch of business schools. I decided, okay, there's only one place I want to go. Otherwise, I'm not willing to spend my time and my life outside of my children and my work. So the only place I want to go is Stanford. So I decided to apply to Stanford. So I decided to do that end of 2017. And then there was a pretty <laughs> tough period of preparation. Like I spent 18 months preparing for Stanford because I had a major test on anxiety. You know, in Stanford in general, to apply to business school, you need to pass GMAT. And I think in Stanford, the average GMAT is like 750. The highest is like 800 and Stanford is 750 average. And every time I stepped into the testing facility, my brain, you know, got frozen and I got like ridiculous score, something like 620 or 630. No matter that, just kind of when I did the testing, when I did like simulations at home, I scored like 800. But whenever I stepped into test facility, it was like 620, 630, 640. So I was pretty demoralized, but I kept going. So I spent like 18 months preparing and just trying to find a way of overcoming this mental barrier. And yeah, I ended up getting the score that I targeted. I ended up writing two really cool essays that I think I'm still proud of even today. And I ended up getting in Stanford and joining the MSX class of 2020. And along the way, you've just been kind of an investor as well, simultaneously? Yeah, I kept doing my thing. But just for you to better understand the venture capital as an industry, it's not that you invest every single day. So what you do, first of all, you create a certain thesis, like what is that you believe that will be true 10 years from now? That's the most important question in venture capital. Okay, well, real quick, what's your thesis? Yeah, so my thesis overall in general is that technology has to solve a big real world problem for humanity. The purpose of venture capital is not to invest in yet another tech project. Venture capital to me is an asset class that allows to solve a very big problem through technology. For example, a bunch of my investments are in the industry like healthcare. My most recent deal in this company called Sunny in Brazil, it's the company that helps elderly people deal with early signs of chronic diseases like Alzheimer and so on and so forth. It targets a population of 65 years plus. And when you think about, you know, the aging population and when you think that people have fewer children, spend longer hours working, people live longer, you want them to live healthier, you want to make sure that you tailor to the needs of specific age category and so on and so forth. So all these things are important to me. So this like big market inefficiencies like healthcare, infrastructure, 
like logistics, for example, like security, that could be addressed through technology. This is my thesis. It has never changed. So that's the first thing. Like when you create this thesis, something that you believe in, then, you know, you have certain industries where you look at given the thesis. And real quick, so just as an example, and thank you for, again, dropping all this knowledge and trying to figure this out. So if someone brought you like a dating app, right? That's something you're not interested in based on your thesis, right? No. Okay. Absolutely not. No. And I'm not interested into anything that leverages like a short-term trend as well. Right. Like NFTs or <laughs> crypto. You know, I was like, I'm a big fan of podcasts, as you can probably tell. So I was listening to this incredible episode with Josh Kushner. So Josh Kushner is the founder of Thrive. He was asked this question about Josh, like, why the hell did you never invest in crypto? And his answer was like, you know, I just could never build a case, like a real world case of where I would believe that it has like a real world application. And in my case, it was the same, like Web3.0 or this virtual reality that was pushed by Meta or NFTs, or even today, like a lot of this AI companies, you know, that emerge at uh, OpenAI as a platform. Like, I just don't know how sustainable that is. That's why it's a no. I think to me, I love complex problems. So for example, the company that I love today is uh, Andrew. Have you heard of them? Yeah. How do you spell it? A-N-D-U-R-I-L-L. It's the company by the former founder of Oculus, who sold his company to Facebook and then he was kicked out of Facebook, but he made like a billion dollars on that transaction. So he started this company, Andrew, which is disrupting the way government contractors work in military, like cost plus contractors work in military. So that's something that in my perspective, worth funding. And it gives a purpose, you know, you're like really solving a big problem through your brain and your capital. Because I think when you think about venture capital, the way I think about venture capital, it's not just that you are investing. Investing is probably the least of things that you could do. I think the important thing is how you help those companies that you invest in. And that's where the majority of your time gets spent. So you don't spend most of your time on just like searching the deals and negotiating the terms. You have three to five years investment period during which you build a portfolio. And then once you build a portfolio, you have to manage those portfolios and you need to help those companies grow. And eventually you need to sell those companies. So this like highly operational part involvement with the startups, that's the most interesting part of work in my perspective. It's something that happens after you've deployed this capital. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And thank you again for giving us a little bit more insights of what your daily routine is or how you're looking at these and how you're able to allocate your time while also going to grad school or raising kids or whatever. So it sounds like over a life cycle of a few years, what you do kind of changes in those funds, if I summarize that correctly. You know, like I was sitting, I remember, I think I was working on the essay for Stanford, looking at my weekly schedule and thinking, oh my God, today I'm dealing with a startup that I used to have this company called Vinebox. I sold it. It was the direct-to-consumer wine company in the States. So I was looking at all this like wines and testing all these wines and the tubes that they sent me. And then the other time I was talking to this incredible founder that I later backed, who was like head of business development in Novartis. And she was telling me about all these issues that exist when you as a biotech company or as a trying to bring a new drug to the market. And then another day I was 
talking to a company of mine that pivoted from one space to another space. And I was sitting and just like thinking how lucky I am to be exposed to so many different industries and just feed my curiosity from so many different perspectives. You know, venture capital and tech investing, I think such a beautiful industry for people with major ADD. And I do think I have ADD, although undiagnosed. So yeah, you do. You, you get to do a lot of really exciting things and they don't even feel like work. Yeah, I definitely see the cool part of it. That's why when I started the podcast, my background was real estate, but I'm like, I don't want to just do real estate. I'm tired of talking about real estate all the time. And, you know, talking to people like you, you know, opens my eyes onto like what your routines are like or how things really work. And then I can talk to a different type of entrepreneur later on. It's just cool that we're all entrepreneurs, if you will, but it's just all so different, you know? So, well, I guess kind of like wrapping things up. I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on before we close down the interview. You know, I was talking with this incredible founder. He's the founder of this company called Butterfly, which is a social impact unicorn out of actually Chile. And at the same time, he's also a two times Ironman world championship runner up. And he was telling me, you know, the big problems of everything that exists today in the society is because people don't dream big enough. It's because they settle and, you know, and because they put a ceiling, like put a hard cap on their ambitions. And I think just connecting our conversation to capital that you create and the value that you create is an output of doing something that you really like and you, that you're really passionate about. And that's like, it's a really direct output of it. If you put your life into something that has meaning to it, that means that you are dedicating ridiculous number of hours because nothing like not a single million on the bank account or on paper in the form of returns on the companies just magically showed up. You have to work really hard to get it. And it's better to do something that you're really excited about and something that you initially dreamed for yourself and then you made it happen and then your wealth came after. Yeah, I think that last point of you actually have to work hard to get to where you want to go. Like, I think that's what gets swept under the rug on a lot of other podcasts or classes or courses on how to become a successful entrepreneur. So I think we've kind of heard that through your story and I appreciate you sharing it. So if anyone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the podcast or to learn more about you, where's the best way for them to reach out? I think you can guys find me on LinkedIn, Olga Maslikova. I'm super active on LinkedIn. It's my social network of choice. So yeah. And again, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. We really appreciate it, Olga. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, we've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back?